Good morning, church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, specifically the Artesia campus pastor. So it is truly such a pleasure to be back here at the Fullerton campus and to see all your faces and really to see some of your faces. Uh, that's such a pleasure for me. Uh, we are continuing in our series, our Shalom series. And as you can see on the title today, we're specifically talking about Shalom through infertility. Shalom for those experiencing infertility but also shalom for the church as we seek to minister to and bring greater shalom in the midst of those who are experiencing infertility. And I will be, I'll say from the get-go, I'm no expert on this subject, uh, but infertility and those experiencing it, uh, do they do have a very big place in my heart. Uh, my wife and I, we celebrated our daughter's first birthday uh, about two weeks ago, but we did wrestle with infertility for the great majority of our 10 years of marriage. And although not everyone struggles with this, the whole church does have a part to play in helping bring shalom. Whether you are wrestling with it, whether you have a lot of kids, or whether you're not even thinking about having kids, we are all called to bring greater shalom. Infertility is typically defined as not being able to get pregnant or carry a pregnancy to full term after at least one year of unprotected intercourse. And according to one survey by the CDC, one in eight couples in America struggles with some form of infertility. And according to the CDC, once again, in about 35% of couples who wrestle with infertility, a male factor is identified along with a female factor. And of course, there's also situations in which it's only a male factor. And although a significant number of the population wrestles with infertility, I think we can all agree it's not something talked about often in the church, much less from the pulpit. And it, it is a very lonely place to be. Uh, my wife Priscilla shared with me a lot of great insights as I was preparing for this message. And she shared with me this particular insight about the loneliness of experiencing infertility. She wrote this. The spectrum, and I do have it projected for you, the spectrum of the infertility journey is so wide and no one walks the same exact path. So while the infertility is shared, the actual experience of it is really lonely. It's difficult to share that journey as you walk it. And so a lot of times you only hear the stories after people have come out on the other side. I know there are many in our congregation who have struggled with infertility. I know there are many as well who currently struggle. And I'm also sure that there are those who struggle in silence who I'm not even aware of. And I want you to know you are definitely not alone. The Lord sees you. We see you. And the Word of God sees you. There are several stories of infertility in the Bible and today we will look into one of those stories, specifically of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah. And through much suffering and through much faith, eventually the mother of the prophet Samuel. I'll read for us the passage. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting from verse 2. I'll read this for us. This is the reading of God's word. The man Elkanah, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. In the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. I'm actually going to skip to verse 6 from here. 
And her rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is God's word. In this passage, we see that Hannah went through so much pain and anguish. And infertility is indeed painful for wives and husbands throughout all times and ages and cultures. But for those in the ancient world, it was also a cause of economical pain, as children would be eventually your workforce, your laborers, and ultimately your insurance policy for the future, right? Back then, they didn't have uh, insurance and social security. And for the Israelites specifically, there was even a theological pain associated with infertility. Because I'm sure you remember in the book of Genesis, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, the offspring of God's people would eventually lead to the Messiah who would defeat Satan and save God's people. And for the Israelite to be infertile meant you weren't furthering or contributing to that potentially messianic line. And so that's why in verse 10 it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept. Bitterly, That phrase, deeply distressed, can also be translated as her soul was bitter. Her soul was bitter. It is a deep and terrible pain that she experiences. And for many in our context, it is a deep and terrible pain for those who experience infertility. And Elkanah 
Her husband, he tries to say something to cheer her up, and it's no, of no use. It's not helpful at all. I'm sure this is the experience of many wives with their husbands. At first glance, you might think what he said is romantic. Isn't my love for you greater than the love of 10 sons? And you're like, wow, romantic. No, this is not romantic because you have to remember, as we just read, we could, you know, I imagine Hannah singing, that's easy for you to say, Elkanah. You straight up married another woman on top of, in addition to me, and you had kids with her, right? It's of no help. It's of no use saying that it's not romantic. And Hannah's anguish remains. And there's so much to glean from this story of infertility and specifically of how the church can help bring greater shalom in the midst of it. I just have two exhortations for us as the church in light of this passage. And so I'll just get right into it. Here is the first exhortation. The first exhortation is, may the church not be penina. May the church not be a penina. Before I progress in this point, just a quick side note for us. You know, it's generally understood that Peninnah is Elkanah's second wife since Hannah couldn't bear children. And please note, this does not mean that the Bible promotes this or, or thinks this is a good idea. In fact, you could argue uh, the heartache and the frustration that comes out of this situation is a warning against these sorts of practices, even though they were the cultural norm. And of course, we see that throughout the scriptures with Hagar and Sarah, Leah and Rachel, and, and other examples as well. And this practice of marrying a second wife for the sake of having children or even just having relations with another woman in order to have children, uh, it was a practical solution for those in the ancient Near East. And of course, we don't do that today. And once again, the Bible doesn't condone that either. But for us today, we do have also practical options as well. Uh, there's adoption, which we have heard even some great testimonies about, even in our own congregation. And then, of course, there's uh, assisted reproductive technology. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. It's a, it's a very complex issue, not a black and white issue. Different varying opinions about different varying uh, types of assisted reproductive technology. But all I will say is, uh, for if, if there are any of you who are considering any of these things, please, please, uh, first of all, your pastors and your elders are here, always available if you want to talk about any of these things. But I do ask that uh, you do your research, uh, not just from a medical perspective, from also from a Christian perspective, and please have good conversations with people you trust and who love you. And please also go in knowing that there are still frustrations, there are still heartaches, uh, there are still setbacks, be it with adoption or assisted reproductive technology. But, but I do digress. I do have to get back to the exhortation. May the church not be penina. In our passage, we see how she provoked Hannah. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Her rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. And therefore, Hannah wept and she would not eat. It doesn't tell us specifically what Penina did or said, but I'm sure it doesn't take much imagination to think of these, what they might be. And I am absolutely certain, I am certain that there is no one in our congregation who intentionally provokes a person uh, suffering with infertility. But I do believe that the church can inadvertently 
be like Peninnah sometimes. I know because I've been on the receiving end of it. And I know also because I've done it as well. I've been a Peninnah myself in different ways. An author by the name of Karen Swallow Pryor, who writes about infertility, she shares a story in which a family member was inadvertently a Peninnah to her as well. Uh, she shares about how right after she got married, this family member just came over and gave her all her old baby clothes and even a stroller. And she wasn't pregnant. She just got married. But the assumption was, well, you're going to have kids very soon, I'm sure. So here's all your stuff. And she writes about how uh, that literal baggage that just stayed in her attic pretty much forever because uh, she wrestles with infertility to this day with her husband. That baggage became emotional baggage. And she shares that sometimes in the church we place this sort of baggage, these expectations and assumptions on others as well. And she concludes by saying this, Indeed, in many chapters of church history, beginning with the Apostle Paul, marriage and family have not been the assumed norm for those devoted to lives of service to Christ. We, we actually heard about this in various messages in this uh, Shalom series already. The prevailing narrative within the culture, church culture included, that assumes family life looks a particular way and follows a certain path conditions those who don't adhere to that plot to feel wrongly out of place in the story. These sorts of expectations and assumptions can easily make people who are already struggling with feelings of being less than. It can intensify that. And we do have to be mindful. We do have to be mindful. You know, there's, I just want to share one other way that uh, we may inadvertently be a penitent. It's something uh, that happened somewhat recently. On a couple occasions for me personally, uh, some young, well-meaning, single brothers asked me a question uh, shortly after we had our daughter. And they asked me, now that you're a father, do you understand God's love more? And, you know, I think we've all heard stuff like this, right? Uh, it's kind of like a Christianese thing. But, and, and, and when they asked me that, I was taken aback. But I do, I do get it. I understand. You know, it's a, it's a new angle. It's a new perspective. And everyone knows that the love a parent feels for their children is profound. But we do have to be careful in speaking this way because we might be inadvertently messaging that you don't know God's love at this level until blank, right? Until you get married, until you have kids, until you reach some certain place that we say you're supposed to reach. We don't want to inadvertently message that. And, and more importantly, the Bible never speaks that way. The Bible never speaks that way. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. He doesn't say, you need to receive the kingdom of God like a father. You need to receive the kingdom of God like a mother. No, he says, you need to receive the kingdom of God like a child. In other words, you don't need to have a child to deeply and fully and truly know the love of your heavenly father. All you need is to be a child, to know how deep and how full and how true your Heavenly Father's love for you is. Please don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And please don't tell people otherwise, even inadvertently. Now, here's what this does not mean. When I say, may the church not be Penina, 
Please don't take that as meaning that you shouldn't celebrate or you shouldn't rejoice the biological family, rejoice over the biological family. Of course you should. Marriage and children are a blessing and a gift from God. And I would say the world celebrates and cherishes these things far too little. So please don't think this means we shouldn't rejoice over these things. You know, I've, I've had some really good brothers, really good friends who love me so much. I could think of two, two of them who literally apologized to me because of their birth announcements, because they knew Priscilla and I were wrestling with infertility. And I had to tell them, please, please, please do not apologize for your good news. Right? It's already a struggle for anyone who's struggling with pretty much anything to weep over those who rejoice. And we don't want to be doing that. Please don't encourage that. Please don't enable that. The the problem is not rejoicing when you ought to rejoice. But the better way, I would say, is, of course, rejoice and celebrate the things that are great and good and gifts from God. But also, weep with those who weep. Don't forget to weep with those who weep. And I really do believe that those good brothers of mine even with their awkward apologies that weren't necessary, what they were in fact doing was weeping with me in their own way. They were acknowledging, I see you. Even though I am celebrating, I see and I hear and I know your struggles. And in fact, and that is indeed what the church is called to do, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Yes, let's keep doing that. But also, Weep with those who weep. And as we do that better and better, we will in fact resemble more and more the family of God. And that leads me to our second exhortation. The first was, may the church not be Penina. But the second exhortation is this. May the church be the family of God. May we look like and act like and indeed be the family of God. And the first thing we see and the first thing you should know about being the family of God is in the family of God, you belong. You know, in the New Testament, we actually see a shift. Uh, After the coming of Christ, we no longer hear about any infertility stories in the Bible. It doesn't mean people no longer wrestled with infertility. But it means that there was now a different kind of family that became the focal point. The spiritual family. The household of God. And that's why Paul says things like, it's better for some to not get married, right? We heard a sermon about that not too many weeks ago. And that's why Jesus says things like, who are my mother and brothers? It's not my biological family. It's those who do the will of God. And Jesus even tells us that there's no more marriage in heaven. And that doesn't mean that the biological family is not important or it doesn't matter anymore. Of course it does. We all know it does. But the spiritual family, which ought to, of course, include the biological family, is now the focal point. The household of God is now one of the main avenues through which the world around us and you and I will find shalom. And this idea of the church being the household of God, the family of God, please don't take this as some kind of like consolation prize. This is like second best Because no matter what our situation, whether you're wrestling with infertility, whether you have kids, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're older or younger or you have much or you have little, this is the calling of all Christians. 
This is the mission that Christ gives to us. This is not a consolation prize, second best, but to be the household of God, to be the family of God is what Christ died for. It's what we're all called to be. And if the church is the family of God, that means that you don't have to fit some kind of mold to belong. You don't have to conform to cultural expectations, expectations about the family, like Karen Pryor Swallow talked about. The only thing that you have to be conformed to is the image of Christ. Like it says in Romans, as long as you are in Christ, you are part of a family. You belong in this family. You matter in this family. And even if the Lord takes you on a path that most people don't seem to be on, even if so many people seem to not struggle with what you struggle with, and even if you should suffer silently, please know that you are not alone. And even if you feel like you are a minority for whatever reason in this congregation, be it infertility or something else, Please remember our good shepherd, Jesus, who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He chases after the one, even though the 99 are over here. We have a Lord like that. And because we have a Lord like that, we want to be more like that. We want to be a people who sees and hears and knows and weeps with the one and not just the 99. This is the shalom that Jesus brings. This is the family in which you belong when you belong to him. That's the first thing we see. In the family of God, you belong. But also in the family of God, spiritual fertility is actually now how we grow. Spiritual fertility. As mentioned before, there is a shift in the New Testament when Jesus comes. Remember in the Old Testament, we all know this, be fruitful and multiply. That was the command, right? That We call that the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. But in the New Testament, there is something else that's given greater emphasis, and that is the great commission. Sure, the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, it still applies. But now the great commission is what comes to the forefront. Make disciples of all nations. And that means our fruitfulness for the kingdom of God can now go so much beyond the biological family. Once again, of course, our biological families should be such a very important part of our spiritual fruit. I hope it is part of your spiritual fruit. But it's not limited to that. It's no longer limited to that. And you know, Hannah was such a great example of such spiritual fertility. You know, the story of Hannah, I think at face value, if you're just scratching the surface, you might take the story like this from 1 Samuel 1. Uh, Hannah wanted a child very much. She prayed very hard, and she had a child. But if that's all you glean from this story, that's actually truly just scratching the surface. Because there's something very remarkable. There are several things very remarkable about this story. Here's the first that I want to uh, mention today. You know, Hannah, she had Samuel. She, had, she gave birth. And then she gave him up. She gave him up to the Lord. 
You know, if you recall, we read in the passage, she made this kind of vow about a razor not touching his head. That was a Nazarite vow. You probably, if you, if you remember the Bible stories, Samson was a very famous Nazarite where you would voluntarily become a priest or some other kind of servant of the Lord, even though you weren't born into that line. That's what that not cutting his hair thing meant. And, and Hannah would give up Samuel. She would raise up this baby and nurse him and, and, and raise him and feed him and take care of him. And when he was old enough, probably about three or four, she gave him up. And he stayed with Eli and he served and he became a minister of the Lord. And she, she had separated from him. Can, do you, can you think how remarkable that is? Someone who wanted a child so badly, but then she would give him up. As it says in verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we didn't read this part, in verses 27 and 28. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And Samuel worshipped the Lord there, meaning Samuel stayed there. Isn't that remarkable? And if you're, if, if you're uh, well-versed in 1 Samuel, you might be saying, Well, Hannah had other kids. Not yet. Not yet. At this point, when she makes that vow and fulfills that vow, Samuel is her only child. And what a spiritual fertility this demonstrates. She, had spiritual, she was spiritually fertile long before she was biologically fertile. And the fulfillment of this vow demonstrated that so clearly. Her child was not just for herself, but for the Lord. The kingdom of God was what her heart and mind were set on. And for you and for me, especially now that Christ has come, the importance of spiritual fertility becomes all the more clear. Because we have to ask ourselves, for what purpose, for what purpose did Jesus die on the cross? I think we all know this, but it's worth saying clearly. He did not die on the cross so that you and I could have a beautiful household. So that you and I can have a beautiful home with beautiful children and beautiful Teslas in the garage. That's not what he died for. Those are good things to want and to have. Especially the Teslas with gas prices now. But that's not what Jesus died for. That is not what Jesus died for. No, he died to make it possible for sinners to be forgiven so that they can now belong, not to your beautiful household, but to the beautiful household of God, to the family of God. And not only that, Jesus died so that you and I can now help others belong and be a part of this family of God, to be adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he died for. That great commission to make disciples of all nations, which once again, which includes our biological children. But may it be so much beyond that. Because spiritual fertility is how our family grows. Now that is the priority now. That takes greater precedence now. May we really believe that. That, I don't want that to be something that's just set from the pulpit and we go, oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Of course the pastor's saying that. But do we believe that that's truly what Christ has called us to? That's why he came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. And as he ascended into, the hev into heaven, that's what he's praying for now. That we would 
that we would continue to bring greater shalom by bringing more and more people into the household of God. And that for those who are already part of that would remember how loved they are, how much they belong, how much they are seen, how much they are cared for by that good shepherd who goes after the one and leaves the 99. You know, I I do think that probably some of us are thinking, well, what if I don't feel so spiritually fertile? What if there are things in my life that just are so hard that I can't even think about being spiritually fertile? That, that's such a foreign concept to me. Or maybe there are some who are thinking, I do prioritize spiritual fertility. I do care so much about the kingdom of God. But there are still things that are so painful in my life. There are still things that are so frustrating, so heartbreaking. If you said that to me face to face, the first thing I would do is I would thank you for your honesty. But then I would tell you more importantly, God cherishes your honesty. As I mentioned, Hannah's story is so remarkable, not just because of that surface level reading, but there's so much deeper things that stand out as we study the scriptures more. Once again, it's not just the story of someone who wanted a baby, prayed very hard, and got what she wanted. That's not all it's about. Yes, so remarkable. She gave up Samuel when, she only had, when he was her only child. But you know, there's something else that we see as well that's quite remarkable. We have to ask ourselves, what ultimately gave Hannah peace? What ultimately gave her shalom? When did that resolution comfort her heart? In verse 18 of our text, it says, Then the woman went her way and ate. You guys remember, right? She was so sad. She could not even eat. But it says in verse 18, Then she went her way and she was able to eat. And her face was no longer sad. When does verse 18 happen? We got to recognize this. Verse 18 does not happen when she gets pregnant. Verse 18 does not happen when she gives birth. Verse 18 does not happen when she sees that, ah, thank you, Lord, Samuel's a healthy, grown child now. No, it does not happen. It happens way before any of those things. It's after she went to the house of the Lord. It's after she honestly bared her soul to God. She didn't hold anything back. She didn't pray properly and politely. She came to God so real and so raw not sugarcoating any of her pain or her frustration or her hopeless feelings. In fact, in verse 16, it says that she had been pouring out her soul to the point where Eli thought she was drunk. That's how real and raw she was coming before her God. That's how intimate she was getting with her heavenly father. And yes, Eli blesses her after that. If we were reading carefully, we recognize Eli did something. He said, may the Lord grant you your request and basically, that's like a benediction, right? It's not a guarantee. And if, if you know the character of Eli in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, he is far too passive to like significantly or persuasively tell Hannah anything to, for that matter. And yet there was peace for her. She was able to eat. She was no longer sad. Once again, not after she became pregnant. 
but simply as she poured out her soul to her God and submitted herself, her life, her future to the care of her Heavenly Father. My beloved brothers and sisters, please, please come honestly to God. Please bring the bitterest parts. Please bring the deepest pains. He can handle it. In fact, he wants it. He wants to carry that with you and for you. And I cannot guarantee you that peace will come quickly or that it will come all at once. But what I can promise, because the scriptures promise this, is that there will be a peace that transcends understanding. That will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as you lay down your burdens and your anxieties at the feet of your Heavenly Father. Hannah testifies. And once again, the point of this story is not just pray harder and you'll get what you want. But the point of this story is the Lord is always doing a good work in you. And when you pray hard, it helps you to see that so much more clearly. It helps you to see the shalom that he is bringing in whatever circumstance. And though he may not always give us what we want, he will always do whatever it takes to make us more and more like Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot, who, as far as I know, did not wrestle with infertility, but she did uh, grieve the death of her husband, who was killed on the mission field back in 1956. And here's what she writes. Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. We can't imagine a love that all, that all it does is just protect us from suffering. We can't imagine that there would be a love that doesn't do that. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into the process. He will not necessarily protect us from that which is going to make you more and more like Jesus. That quote, amongst other things, ministered to me personally so much, especially right after a fateful meeting with a fertility doctor. And we were told that I specifically, me, I would have a very slim chance of getting my wife pregnant. And I was not expecting that news. Of course, I was devastated. I wept. But Elizabeth Elliot and the scriptures, of course, reminded me that even that was by the love of God. Even that, hearing bad news from a doctor, was a way in which the Lord was making me more like his son. And I'll, I'll admit, knowing that didn't make me perfectly feel better. But knowing that kept me going. And even though we ended up, by the grace of God, eventually having Emory, perhaps against all odds, that truth still remains. That truth is still a truth I had to preach to myself long before we knew Emory was coming. And that's a truth that I have to preach to myself today as we all continue to wrestle with so many different things. And my dear friends, whatever you are going through today, I pray that Hannah also reminds you of that reality. That your Heavenly Father He is with you. He sees you. 
He hears you, and he is making you more and more like Jesus. This Jesus who would die for us to make us into a family. This Jesus who would leave the 99 to chase after the one. And he died for us to belong to this family. And it's in this family that we do find greater and greater shalom. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, I'm sure there's so much we wrestle with in this place. Oh Lord, I'm sure there are many who suffer in silence, be it with infertility or a multitude of other things that make us feel perhaps unseen, unheard, less than. Oh Lord, I thank you for the good shepherd who reminds us that indeed we are seen, indeed we are cared for, indeed we are chased after. And Lord, would the church represent that more and more because we belong to his family? Lord, make us a people who are not like Penina. Make us a people who see, who love, who care for, who weep with those who weep, as well as rejoice when we need to rejoice. And most importantly, Lord, would you bring great comfort? Would you bring great resolution as we pour out our souls to you? As we come honestly, laying it all down. Lord, we do pray for that peace that transcends understanding how we need that. We all need that. And we thank you that in Christ, we indeed have it. My brothers and sisters, would you just spend a few moments now pouring out your souls to God, whatever might be on your hearts. Let's spend a few moments praying to God uh, individually, and then our worship team will lead us in a song shortly after.